Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I have the privilege this morning of reading uh, the scriptures, the text that Bruce will expound for us. And I would encourage you as I read, if you would follow along, you can follow along in your own Bibles, whether in print or digital format, or it should be on the screens behind me. Or if you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, that's page 1289. And we're reading this morning, we're continuing in the epistle of James, and we're in chapter 2. James, as Bruce has pointed out to us, James is, was the half-brother of Jesus. James was called James the Just, and at the time he was the, um, he was the head of the church in Jerusalem. And that's impressive, and that's amazing, but... Um, What's stunning, of course, is that James was just the messenger. The message came, as Bruce alluded in his prayer, this message actually came from God himself. And that is, to me, stunning. This is the word of God. Beginning chapter 2, beginning verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak. And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen and amen. This is the word of God. James, who wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, this wonderful letter to the church, had a context that is that James was concerned that something that he was seeing in the culture, and really, since he's writing to Jews who had become Christians, specifically that culture that had come into the church, or at least had the potential, if not the threat, of coming into the church. That is, one of the concerns that that James James has been dealing with since chapter 1, and he's begun here in chapter 2, but he's begun to hone in, begun to refine, begun to come closer to where their hearts are and where maybe our hearts are too, That is, in general, he's dealing with this misapplication of the gift of grace. That is, a faith without obedience. That is, that somehow that you could have obedience and still have a genuine faith 
in Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. Now, the truth is, is that if you have a faith that has no obedience, you have no real genuine faith. That is, if you believe in what Jesus has done for you, it's got implications. It changes everything. It's not just an additive to our lives. It's something that changes everything about our lives. But it is also true that if you have an obedience without faith, you don't have a genuine faith. That is, if you're running around and you're an incredibly moral person simply because it's an inner morality or a cultural morality, that doesn't mean anything's really changed about your heart. And James is saying, along with all the writers of the New Testament, particularly uh, Paul, that, that both of those are must be together because it is your faith in Christ that empowers your obedience. Some have said that if you, if you emphasize one, if you have to emphasize one, emphasize grace. Well, the problem is, is that when we only talk about grace, then people think that there's nothing about my life that has to change. I just need to believe. And that somehow that we're going to be less obedient, I think, if we're faithful to the gospel and we're faithful to call people to the changes that it makes in our lives, that we'll actually have more obedience, deeper obedience, truer obedience. That is, it might look messier because we're finally dealing with the issues of the heart, which are always messy. You see, if we only focus on, a, on the externals, the obedience, we could look quite tidy together. But in reality, our hearts are a mess on the inside. But if we ever shoot for the heart, which only the gospel penetrates and transforms, then things are just going to get messy because our hearts are messy and often far from God. The example that James uses here, now he's coming in very specific, and he does that. He'll start incredibly general. Faith without works is dead. And then he's going to get very narrow here on a work, a a law. And he's going to say this in verse 1. My brothers, and I love how he starts out because he, he starts out with us all being on the same playing field. And, and, and women don't miss this, but he literally, because there wasn't a feminine verb, I mean, a noun for this, he's including you. And he says, brothers and sisters, we're all in this together. Show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Did you hear both? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, and be obedient. Show no partiality. That's a command that we are not to be partial. But what does that mean? Show no partiality. He's not talking about your favorite ice cream, your favorite football team, your favorite whatever. He's talking about favoritism. What do I mean by that? The word that James is using here are two Greek words that he has brought together into one word. The first part of that word that he's using here literally means to take something or someone, to receive something or someone. That's what the first part of that Greek word. The other part 
the other Greek word that he has slapped together talks about someone's face. And so literally can be translated the taking or the receiving of a, someone's face. The taking or receiving a face. And what that means in biblical world that we're trying to get our minds around that they would have understood, it's another way of saying, I have preference for your face. I want your presence, which implies I don't want someone else's. That is, it's impossible to, be, to show favoritism without also discriminating. And both are being based on externals, is James's call here. He's saying, you, you want someone else's present, you don't want this other person's presence. And in both cases, it's all external. It's all on the outside, your decision. It's preferring a person's presence. I want you to also note that you don't see that in the English translation before us, but in the original language, the word partiality is plural. It's a verb and it's a plural. That is, he's not saying show no partiality, singular, He's saying, show no partialities, plural, that there are many different ways in which we can show favoritism, that there's not just a singular way to uh, want someone's presence with you, that there are, there are lots of ways. There's, there's discrimination as well as favoritism. In the Old Testament, and this is the context that James is speaking to, he's speaking to the Jews who had come out and been called out of the world to live as a holy people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, his special treasure in the world so that the world can see what these incredible values and incredible gospel would look like in a community of people. It's a small nation, and often when you're a small nation, you begin to feel inferior, and when you begin to feel inferior, often you overcompensate by acting superior. That is, it wasn't just that the Jews were called out to be a holy nation, but they began to use that calling as a way to discriminate and to show favoritism. How do we know that? The Talmud, which was written 100 to 200 years before Christ walked on the earth, there was a Jewish prayer that had become common, so common that almost every Jewish free man prayed it every day. And the prayer went like this, bless you, Lord, for not making me a woman, for not making me a slave and for not making me a Gentile. You see, the calling, something good here, to be holy, to be different than the rest of the world, to show the world how the gospel changes a culture, changes a community of people, became the foundation for who they had as their favorites and whom is left out through discrimination. To the point where that had come all the way into their heart not just on the externals, into their heart because they did what? They even prayed, Lord, I am so thankful because life as a woman in this world is hard. You made me a man. Life as a slave is hard. You made me a free man. 
And most people that were slaves in the first century were not slaves because they were forced into servitude in the sense of they were captured, they were brought into slaves. There were plenty of those kinds of slaves. But the vast majority of slaves in the first century were slaves by choice. That is, they became slaves because they owed so much money that they could not pay it off, that the only way that they could approach paying that debt was to move their life and their family into servitude. That's why Jews looked at slaves as people who couldn't make it, unsuccessful failures in this world, losers. And so thank you, God, bless you that you did not make me a slave because that means I'm not a loser. And Gentiles, Gentiles of all people, there were two classes of people in the Jewish mind, Jews and everybody else. And Gentile was a pejorative. It's not like the Gentiles walked around and said, I'm a Gentile. The way the Jews walked around and said, I'm Jew. Gentiles were considered dirty, unclean. If you touched a Gentile, you could not go to worship. You could not go to temple. That's why that story of the Samaritan is so amazing. Because who's the hero of the story? But a Samaritan, someone that they considered dirty. A half-breed. I'm just trying to communicate to you that James is writing into a context. He's not writing into a phone booth. And because he's writing into a context, he's writing into a context of discrimination and favoritism and prejudice and hurt and pain. And he wants them to understand, I don't want you to have that in the church. I want you to have a different set of values, a different a set of way of treating people, a different way of looking at people altogether and have no favorites. And that implies don't discriminate. Even the temple, even the temple had courts that separated the people, the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles and the court for the men. But the church is to be different. The scriptures teach that Christianity teaches that every person carries the dignity and the glory of God's image. Everyone, all people. There's not a gradation. There's not a, a category of less than. You realize in the, in the uh, early part of American history, embedded in the church was this false teaching that if you were of African descent, you had no image of God. None. And it gave them the permission to treat them as property and as non-humans. And that's how slavery began. And then when people began to notice that the scripture says that all humans were created in the image of God, they began to say, no, 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 no. They're, yes, those from Africa have the image of God, but it's marred. It's so marred that there's a graduation of the image that they have, less than. Even it ended up being reflected in our constitution where they represented a two-thirds of a human being. C.S. Lewis will write, because that is true, that every human being carries the dignity and the glory of God's image, that you have never met a mere mortal. The person that you're sitting next to that you fought with all the way to church, 
The children that you wish were someone else's. The children who look at their parents and, and wish that they had a different set today. They're not mere mortals. They are bearers of the image and the glory and the dignity of God. That's why me, M, Martin Luther King will say there are no gradu, gra, uh, gradations in the image of God and therefore we are to respect the dignity and worth of every person. It is our culture, the Western civilization that has come and said there is no image of God. At the very same time, out of the same breath, they're trying to say you have dignity and worth. And the truth is, we will not flourish as human beings unless we tie ourselves to the Imago Dei, the image of God. Because you cannot have worth and dignity apart from that. Otherwise, we are just slime from the primordial slime that are now on two feet. And we have no dignity. James is concerned that this sin of favoritism and impartiality and discrimination has come into the church and it's a threat to the gospel message in which we preach. As children of faith, how we are to act toward those who are not like us tells a lot about what we believe about the gospel and what Christ has done. Particularly, Paul's, I mean, James's example here is of poor. Because he says plural, there are different kinds of discrimination. There also are different people to discriminate against. Because there are different kinds, there are different objects of those or subjects of those of that discrimination. In this case, he focuses upon one. You see that in verses two through four. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, that word assembly will eventually become the word for the church. And a poor man is shabbily clothed, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, where there, where there are no, no, no columns, you don't have to look around or strain, you don't, have to, you don't have to strain to see what's going on up front. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, Or you sit down here at my feet, because that's what slaves did. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You hear what he's saying? If you show favoritism toward anyone or discriminate against another person, groups or individuals, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And then you've become the judge? And not just any judge, but a judge with evil thoughts. I just want you to know, James is not looking into the 21st century and saying, you know, I know the American church is going to really struggle with this. And so I'm going to write about it here. And then someday they're going to be able to draw on this verse to apply. That's true, that that's what we're doing here. But that's not what he was thinking. This is a problem in the first century. This is the problem in the first century church. Do you know your own church history? What is the first problem in the church? The very first one. Not not the one where how are we going to replace Judas who killed himself? That's 
Acts 1. They immediately have a vote. But the gathering began to gather people from every tribe, people and tongue in Jerusalem. And they were coming to Christ 3,000 in one day. And then a couple of pages over, it'll be 5,000. The very first problem they have shows up in Acts chapter 6. There are two different kinds of widows in the church. Those that are Hebrew in culture and those that are Greek in culture. And the Greek in culture speak Greek and those that Hebrew speak in Aramaic, which is a form of Hebrew. They're both in the church, both widows, that is people who had nobody. Their husband had died. Their children could not provide a source of income. They were poor. They've come into the church for care. They've come to faith in Christ. They're in the church. And the church's first problem is because they're giving more resources to Hebrews widows than they are to Greek widows. And a concern is raised in the body and the apostles say, we need somebody impartial here. So they select seven Hellenistic, it says, or Greek speaking deacons to serve. Why? Because nobody's going to accuse these Greek speaking deacons of not taking care of Greek speaking widows. Do you see the very first problem that the church faces is discrimination and favoritism? It's going to be such a problem that Peter gets this dream because so many Gentiles are coming to faith that he's of what's clean now and what's unclean. He's got to undo that everybody thought that Gentiles by nature were unclean. He leads a guy named Cornelius uh, uh, to Jesus. And then the big debate starts for the next few chapters. What are we going to require of these guys? And in Acts 15, they settled the issue. But did they? Not if James is writing years later that there's a potential for the gathering to have favoritism to wealthy people and discrimination against poor people in the church. Which do you think, by the way, the early church had more of? Wealthy or poor? History says that the vast majority of the people who were coming to Jesus in the first century were poor. That doesn't mean you don't have examples of wealthy people like Barnabas. There are wealthy people in the church. But it's so few. So when they were discriminating, they were discriminating against the... the, They were discriminating against themselves. Very poor. The first symbol of the church was not the cross. The cross doesn't come into the church until much later when the Roman Empire is far weaker and and the Roman Empire has moved on from using crosses as execution devices. I mean, you can imagine if the church was going to use an electric chair here. That would be the equivalent. So the cross doesn't come into the church until later, hundreds of years later. One of the first symbols of the church was Noah's Ark. The picture of God gathering what? All kinds, every kind. So much that the church, Tertullian, who was the first church historian in in the fourth century, 300s, said that, that the church is a mixed bag. It's of all kinds of people from every part of the world. That's the the description of the early church. And James is saying, 
When we discriminate, when we show favoritism, when, when, when we show partiality, we are denying what God has created in the church. All kinds, every kind. Verse 4 says, Have you then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Human judging always does two things. It always says you're in, but then it says you're out. Whenever you bring someone in, you're not bringing everybody in, and therefore you're leaving someone out. That's why he talks about how do you make that determination? When humans make that determination, we judge. And because we can't see the heart, we end up judging on the externals. Your appearances, your wealth, your reputation. And James is saying, if you're not careful, church, if we are not careful, brothers and sisters, then we will give the antithesis of the gospel out. We will live in such a way that the world can't tell that the gospel has changed us. And we lose the power of the gospel in the testimony of the transformation of the people. As I was thinking about this message, I was lamenting over something that has not changed in our culture in 250 years. You see, the military has found a way to change. There was a time where if you were an African-American, you did not serve with the others in the military. You had your own units. That's changed. The, 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 the military has reflected in many ways a very biblical principle. It's not about the color of your skin. It's about what you can do. It's about, it's about who you are. Why hasn't the church done that? One thing that I lament is that it is still true today that the most segregated hour in the United States is at 11 o'clock. Still true, 250 years later, that white people primarily go to churches that are predominantly white and African-Americans primarily go to churches that are African-American and Hispanic people go to primarily churches that are Hispanic. The church, the place that's supposed to be Noah's Ark, Every kind, all kinds, is not reflecting that value. And that's what James is saying. That's evil. And if we're not lamenting that, we're not praying for that, we're not working toward ending that, then, then we don't, we're not being transformed by the gospel ourselves. The church has had opportunities throughout our history to stand up and say, we're going to show no partiality with regards to race and gender and strangers and even sexuality that our culture is struggling with today. I'm not saying that the church has to give up holding on to the truth. Hold on to the truth dearly. Guard the truth. But I can guard the truth with one hand and put out a welcoming arm at the same time. Race is the one place that we can say has no place in the church. Because God is calling every tribe, people, and tongue. You can have leadership 
vested in the ordained office of elder and it be male and still treat women with dignity. We still can. Those are not oxymoronic ideas that don't go together. They do. Women should feel the treasure that they are. I'm not saying you put them on a pedestal because it's so far to fall when you put people on pedestals, but treat them by the dignity that God has given them. And part of that is just asking them the same kind of questions you would ask a guy. Isn't it interesting that sometimes we'll, we'll ask the guy, what's God teaching you? But when we come to the girl, we, we say, well, how's the house going? We miss the opportunity to treat them as the human beings that God has made them to be. Strangers, and I don't even care what your politics or policy is on immigration. That's not the issue. The issue is what are we going to do with that they're here? Millions upon millions, some estimate 6 million, some as many as 12 million people are here as immigrants, both legally and illegally. We're the stranger who have been brought in. Hospitality, by definition, is caring for the stranger. And that's true about sexuality. We've got this opportunity, I think, uniquely. 50 years from now, we're going to look back and see how the church handled this. Where most people who struggle with same-sex attraction believe there's no place in evangelical churches for them. Where else do you expect people who struggle with same-sex attraction to go if it's not the church? Let me pop a bubble for you. We've got loads of people in our church who struggle with same-sex attraction. They're just quiet because they're afraid of your response. And that's true in evangelical churches all over our city and all over our nation because we can't somehow hold on to truth and hold on to them at the same time. We hadn't figured that out. But that's our poverty. That's not, that's not a badge of courage. That's poverty. Listen, my bro- beloved brothers, verse 5, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Here's the irony. We tend to think the poor, they, they just come along. They're, they're, they're just additives. But, but, but James says, God chose them intentionally to be rich in faith. Heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love them. Why? Why would God choose poor people, strangers, widows, people who are struggling with sin? Because it is when we are that desperate, when we are in that kind of need, we'll turn to Jesus. When we think we've got it and we just need a little additive, we won't turn to him. To show the grace is countercultural. God chooses the bottom of a culture to raise up to the top of the church. That's what John Calvin said. God chiefly mentions the poor because for the most part, they are destitute of help and assistance. And the very people who are supposed to help them, Calvin says, the magistrates and the judges, they indulge more contempt toward the poor for they make it unsafe for them. We need to 
remember that. In our attempts to make ourselves safe, we make it unsafe for them. There's a, there's a study that George Gallup did before he died in which he measured American statements that you agree with, that you think are in the Bible. The number one statement that most Christians believe are in the Bible is this one. God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere in the Bible, but Americans have believed. And it's the antithesis of the gospel. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's why he goes to the poor, because they can't help themselves. That's why he goes to the widow, because the widow has no one else. That's why he goes to the stranger, because they don't know anybody, no family. It's the whole idea about an immigrant, is they don't know anybody. Another one is the deserving poor, as if there are two classes of poor, the deserving and the undeserving. Mercy, by definition, is giving to the undeserving. If you can find a deserving poor, let me know. And I think one of the ones that I, I, I think that we are struggling with in our nationalism today is that somehow the Amar, uh, uh, United States, America, is God's chosen people. How's that any different? The God of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, what would it look like for us to honor them? What would it look like as a church that is fairly well off, who tends to be highly educated, who's plugged into the social structures of our community? What would it look like for us in this place to honor poor, widows, orphans, and strangers? The problem for most of us, at least for me, maybe you're not like me, is I don't see myself that way as poor, a stranger an orphan, a widow. And that's part of my problem. Because the gospel has its greatest effect when I see myself through those eyes. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. So let's honor them together. Verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. This is the beginning here. The beginning of uh, of showing honor to these people is to admit that we have been shown them dishonor. It's to repent. That's the beginning of change. It's to say, this is a sin. It is destruct, destructive. It is gross and it is horrible. And it makes me a transgressor. And so lastly, before we come to the Lord's Supper, I've already hit the moment. Is where do you get the power for this? If, if we're told to honor the poor, if we're told not to show partiality and not be discriminated, where are we going to get it from? Verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act. Here's the obedience. As those, here comes, here comes the gospel, who are judged under the law of liberty. Notice he didn't say under the law because no one can stand. 617 of them. What's the standard he said? If you break one law, you've broken them all. That's what he said. So here's the law of liberty. God took the one perfect being in the cosmos, Jesus Christ, and put him on the cross for us in our place and assigned that work to us as if we had done it ourselves. We've been judged under the law of liberty, what he has done for us, and we have been found not guilty. 
And that's how mercy triumphs over judgment. Because either you trust that and therefore you receive mercy, or you trust yourself and you get judgment. Those are the only two options for human beings. Which are you? Which am I? Am I the recipient of mercy and therefore I can give mercy? I can judge no one because I have been judged under the law of liberty. Or am I still trying to hold on that I am better? That I want the face of someone else. I want the presence of someone else. And I'm totally making that distinction on externals. Then I'm left for judgment. And that's where we stand today as we think through where you are. Are you under judgment? Or have you recognized you're under mercy? And therefore you can give mercy without favorites and without distinctions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for James, for his challenge to our hearts. We so much want to have no favoritisms, no partiality, no discrimination. And you've given us rich power to say no to sin and yes to obedience in this particular area, to honor the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, because you're the God of them, because you saw their helplessness, our helplessness, and you saved us. We long for a day where there'll be every tribe, people, and tongue, and no opportunity to show favorites, no opportunity to discriminate and leave someone out. Everyone comes in to the house and enjoys the meal with the king. We pray that it happens soon, that our children would not grow up in a world where they have to taste the bitterness of discrimination being left out or taste the bitterness of showing favorites in order to get ahead in our culture. We pray that we begin by repenting, Father, that it's evil to be to show favoritism, partiality, or to discriminate. And it strikes at the vitals of our witness and of the gospel we bear witness to. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you continue to mold our hearts. Make us like Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.